Uh, let me introduce myself first of all. My name is Dave, uh, Dave McDonald. I was at a, a baptism yesterday and I heard them talking about uh, the influence of a pastor called David McDonald uh, on Lily, the person being baptised. And I thought, oh, I didn't realise. And um, that's interesting, but what's even more interesting is Lily didn't know that was my name. I was just Macca. So there you go. Um, uh, let me tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, I'm Macca. I'm married to Mrs. Macca. And uh, my father, Mr. Mr. Macca, is uh, with us today as well. Uh, we're really all called McDonald's. In fact, that's been a problem for us, being in pastoral ministry over the years, because we've often invited families to come back to our place for lunch, uh, and their parents would say, we're going to Macca's for lunch, and they'd get to our place, and they'd grizzle and complain, um, <laughs> expecting something else. Uh, it was good to hear about surprises before. I didn't get any surprises, no chocolate this morning in my house, but um, uh, the idea of surprises, um, you were talking about milk, right, and not having dates on milk. Well, I used to be a milkman. And uh, people would go away on holidays and sometimes they'd forget to tell us that they were going away and they wouldn't cancel their milk order. So I used to delight in stockpiling their milk so that they'd get a surprise when they came back after a few weeks of summer holidays. And I, I used to actually measure how far the curds in the way would separate to push those little foil lids up above the glass. And I, I think at points it actually got to about four inches above the glass. Um, anyway, um, I've got more important things to say than stories about being milkman uh, today, but thank you for that, Nathan, a little bit of memory lane. Uh, we're going to be talking about probably the most significant thing to ever happen. And I want to say at the outset, if it didn't happen, there's not much point in us being here today. If it did happen, then there's point to being here today and living life in the light of it. Uh, so how about we pray that God will... Uh, reveal himself to us as we look at his word together this afternoon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this Easter we can read about what took place with Jesus 2,000 years ago. Uh, please impress it upon our minds. Help us to grapple with our doubts. Help us to think clearly about what this means. And we pray that each of us here this afternoon will be changed somehow, uh, that we won't go from here going ho-hum, ignoring what we hear, but you'll push us to make changes on the basis of this. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the years, I've spent a fair bit of time trying to persuade people to take Christianity seriously. Uh, a number of those years I spent as a university chaplain, uh, wandering around, speaking to people about the meaning of life, and a common response to inviting them to have a look at what Christianity teaches is for them to say something like, if there is a God, then why doesn't he show some evidence? Um, maybe why doesn't he turn up here? Why doesn't he give a better account of himself? Why doesn't he give some proof that nobody can deny? But you see, the reality is, what if there is a God and he has shown up and he has given evidence and we've failed to see it? Are we asking him to repeat everything all the time, again and again and again and again? Or is there evidence to show us that God is real and that he has shown up? Well, we're looking at the end of this biography about Jesus. Uh, we, we began months ago, really, looking at the birth of Christ. We've seen his ministry in the last three years of his life. 
And now we've come to his death on Good Friday and now the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And one of the things that we notice in this last account is the importance of witnesses to Jesus. If you have a look at your handout there, I've printed out the Bible text, and you'll notice that I've highlighted some words. You can see it there from verse 1, Mary went to see the tomb. Uh, Or down in verse 6, come and see the place where he lay. Or verse 7, there you will see him, see I have told you. And then in verse 10, and there they will see me. And verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. We're intended as readers of this account to recognise that there are witnesses to Jesus. There are people who saw him. There are people who looked at him. There's people who paid attention to what they saw. And the reason that I've printed this out for you is also to show a word that we could easily skip over. Because the meaning of the sentences will be much the same if we did. And it's the word behold. You'll see it there in verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. And down in verse 7. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. And verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city. And then down in the last verse. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The idea of behold, it's kind of like when he's writing this, he says, look, check this out. Behold, pay attention to this. This is the evidence, guys. This is what you need to see. Look at what's happening. Well, what we're dealing with here in this last section of Matthew's Gospel needs to be understood for what it is. I think there are people today who think of the Bible much the same way that you or I might think of Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter because there are angels and there are demons and there are accounts of extraordinary things taking place. But there's no doubt amongst ancient historians as they read through the Gospels that they're dealing with a historical record. There is absolutely no professor in any university, secular or otherwise, in a tenured position who denies that Jesus lived. I've got a friend who's involved as an ancient historian. He's got a standing challenge. If anyone can show one professor, one tenured professor of ancient history who can provide any element of proof that Jesus never lived, he will eat a page from his Bible. And I I saw him on video again this afternoon. He hasn't had to eat anything yet. Someone suggested he he find the sweetest verses in the Bible in case he has to eat them. Uh, But I imagine it would be, well, I can't imagine it would be. Well, let's have a look then at what we see in the historical record. Uh, First of all, we've looked at Good Friday And it's very important for us to see that there are a number of things established from that day. First of all, that Jesus has died, that he was buried, and that he's under guard. Now, we've got four historical accounts of this being the case. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're dealing here with Matthew, but each of the four Gospels give us a different witness to the resurrection of Jesus. They tell us that, first of all, he lived, he died, he was buried, 
and that Joseph of Arimathea, this rich man, took his body and placed it in a tomb on his property. All the accounts give us that information. Not only do we find this information here, but you can go back to some Roman historians, people like Tacitus in 115 BC, who testifies to the fact that Jesus was sentenced to death under Pontius Pilate. The Jewish historian Josephus in 93 AD also speaks about Jesus being crucified under Pontius Pilate. Here in Matthew's Gospel, we get some additional information. We're told in verses 62 and following that there was uh, the possibility that the teaching of Jesus may come true. And the, uh, the threat of that was terrifying to the chief priests and the Pharisees who had done everything they could to get rid of Jesus. And so we read this, verse 63. Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will even be worse than the first. And Pilate said to him, to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, clearly, they think that there's a threat, these authorities. Uh, a threat not of Jesus actually rising, but of the disciples making it look like he did. Uh, if Jesus has been saying these things, if, if that's the propaganda, then the last thing that you want is for anything to happen that might actually give reality to that story. So let's put a guard on the tomb. Let's seal up this tomb so that there's a stop to any false uh, proclamation that Jesus might have actually raised from the dead. He's dead. He's buried. Let's keep it that way, they're thinking. But each of the four Gospels take us further. Uh, as you read on here in Matthew, you get to Sunday morning. And on Sunday morning, the tomb is empty. Each of the four Gospels talk about uh, the angel or angels, guards, women, disciples, the stone being rolled away. And here in Matthew's Gospel, we get an explanation for these things. Down in verse 5, the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Now, we're given the explanation here of what happens on the Sunday morning. Um, we see Jesus in what follows, meeting with his disciples. We see him talking with them, walking with them, eating with them, appearing to various people. And it's these two claims, the claim that the tomb is empty and that people have seen the resurrected Jesus that form the foundation of Christian belief. If you're inquiring into Christian belief, if you're wondering whether or not it can be trusted, if perhaps you're exploring these things this Easter and you've got question marks over whether what Christians say is true, whether you can trust the Bible and so on, these are the two things to focus on for today. The evidence in all of the Gospels 
is that the tomb has been emptied. Not that it was always empty, but that there was a body placed in the tomb and come Sunday morning it's empty. Secondly, there are people who are said to be eyewitnesses to Jesus on the Sunday and beyond. So either he didn't die and they're seeing him continue or he did die and he's now risen from the dead. They're the things that we need to grapple with. Now, the Apostle Paul, uh, one of the main writers of the New Testament, uh, he spoke on this and wrote about this extensively. And I'd just like to read to you um, his account of the witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. He says this, and it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, that's the other name he has, and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So as Paul writes about what happened on that first Easter Sunday, he speaks of Jesus appearing to the twelve, to Cephas, Peter, the, that close follower of Jesus, uh, to 500 brothers and sisters on one occasion at the same time, uh, to James, presumably his brother, to Thomas, who was still renowned for doubting him, and last of all, he appears to Paul, or as he was called, Saul, in an unusual circumstance. So what do we make of this? this evidence for the resurrection. Well, I want to dig in a little closer into Matthew 27 and 28 with you. First of all, there are some who would say of accounts for the resurrection that clearly they went to the wrong tomb. Um, dead people don't rise from the dead, therefore he's still dead, therefore they just got the tombs muddled. I mean, surely there were lots of tombs around the place, they went to the wrong one. But I think Matthew makes it very clear that they didn't get the wrong tomb. Um, have a look here at verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. They are paying attention to what's going on. They're losing their loved one and they see his body laid in a tomb. They're sitting across and they see that tomb clearly. And then down in verse 1, after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. I mean, they know where they're going, these women. It's, it's not a case that they would make a mistake. Secondly, we see in verse 66 that Pilate allows the chief priests and the Pharisees to secure the tomb by sealing the stone and setting a guard, a, a Roman guard at the tomb and the Roman guards were known to do their job well. They wouldn't mistake where the tomb was and if an imperial seal 
has been put on this tomb, for them to get it wrong, for them to muck up where this tomb was, could be at threat of their lives. For the Roman guard to fail to guard would be a very dangerous prospect for them. No, I take it that there are no mistakes going on here. There's clarity about this being the burial site of Jesus. And if it was the wrong place, don't you think the authorities would have just pointed out the right place and opened up the tomb and shown the body once they started proclaiming the resurrection? But there's another uh, story that's on view here, and that is the, the tale of the stolen corpse. Um, and you can see them anticipating that this might become a story. Uh, the uh, Pharisees and the chief priests speak to Pilate about the threat of them robbing the grave. And so this is why the guard is put in place. And it says here that this story has continued to this day. And then down in verse 11... While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they were given a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this very day. It's interesting, actually, looking at um, going back a chapter and we read that Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. This time, we're told that the soldiers are given a sufficient sum of money. Um, I imagine it's a lot more than 30 pieces of silver. If they're going to keep this hidden, something that could cost them their jobs, actually cost them their lives, you can imagine they were paid off pretty well. But the point remains the same. What benefit is there for the disciples to steal the body? We'll come to that. The other thing that I point out, and this has often been pointed out in recent times, is that the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus were women. Now you might think, uh, am I making a sexist point here? Well, kind of, because you see, back in the time when these events took place, women's testimony didn't stand up in a court of law. And the significance of that is not to say that the women are unreliable, um, although men may have treated that as an unreliable testimony and you can find in one of the other Gospels the disciples uh, thinking, no, we've got to check this out for ourselves. But the point is this. If you were making up a story about Jesus being raised from the dead, wouldn't you put credible witnesses in the account? Why would you have women whose testimony was not considered to be valid as the eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. Not only that, but angels as well. Think, come on, we want you to take this seriously. Well, friends, all the Gospels tell us 
that Jesus lived, died through crucifixion, was buried in a tomb and was raised on the third day. They all tell us that the tomb was empty and that there were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. So I want to ask us the question this morning, this afternoon, what do you see when you look at this? What, what do you see going on? What's the significance of these events to you? See, I take it there are good reasons here to believe in the crucifixion, burial and resurrection of Jesus. When you came in, hopefully if you got a little handout, you also got an article um, printed out inside it called uh, Fact or Fantasy. Um, not to read now, I've still got a couple more things to say, but for you to take home and read and think about. Food for thought. What is the best explanation for an empty tomb and eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus? Well, over the years, people have set out to disprove the resurrection. They have accumulated evidence, they've sourced documents, they've pieced things together, they've explored archaeology, history outside the Bible and history inside the Bible. They've postulated about the circumstantial evidence, what's most likely to explain the facts as we know them. And extraordinarily, a number of people who set out to write books disproving the resurrection ended up having to change the book. One of them was a man by the name of Albert Henry Ross, or you might know him as Frank Morrison. He wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? He set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. Another was by a man called Josh McDowell, who wrote a book called More Than a Carpenter. Again, he decided that he would deal with the sections in Jesus' life that had the least miracles. He wanted to get rid of anything that could be seen as miraculous, so he pretty much focused his search into the last week of Jesus' life and ended up gathering the evidence, looking at it together, and writing a massive book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Rather than being able to persuade other people that the resurrection did not take place, Frank Morrison and Josh McDowell were both persuaded themselves that it was true. I've got a couple of books at home that have been written by people who know how to weigh up evidence. One of them is a man called Clary Bruce. Those of you who are older might remember that he was the commissioner of New South Wales Crime Commission. And as a lawyer who's good at sifting evidence, he became persuaded himself that the resurrection was the best explanation for the empty tomb and people seeing appearances of Jesus. And you can find again and again leading historians who take the Bible as a historical document forgetting the theology of it, but just looking at historical evidence, who think we've got to at least allow the possibility that the resurrection is the explanation for the events that we see. 
In fact, some would go so far as to say the only reason that you wouldn't explain this as a resurrection is because you've already decided in advance that dead people don't rise from the dead. A little bit like those Poms who decided that there was no such thing as a black swan. Because in England, swans are white by definition till they came to Australia and saw that there's such a thing as a black swan. Friends, what is the explanation for what we see on Easter Sunday? Now, let me tell you a little bit about my story, just briefly. I grew up in a Christian home. I was taught from a young age at church and at home the Bible. I think I always believed in Jesus, believed in God, had talked about the cross and the resurrection. But when I left home at the age of 17, I had to try and work out for myself whether I just inherited beliefs about this or whether there was good reason for it. And I remember asking a question of some people and they pointed me to that little book that I mentioned before called More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. And as I read through that and I looked at the explanations for the empty tomb and the appearances of Jesus, I think God helped me to understand and to believe for myself that this was the best explanation and that therefore Jesus was alive now. Fast forward a few decades where I'd been working as a Christian minister a lot of my time spent persuading people about the resurrection, many times at the deathbed of somebody who's trying to work out whether they truly believe in this or they don't. And then I find myself diagnosed with a terminal illness and having to ask all these questions for myself again. Is this true? Because I'm being told that I'm going to die. Well, I, I wasn't smart enough to realise I was always going to die and that I hadn't suddenly got a terminal illness. I was born with one, the same one you've got, by the way. But it confronted me with my mortality. And I had to start again asking those questions. A Christian minister facing doubts, exploring again the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And I did. And I'm persuaded even more today that Jesus lives. He lived in AD 33 after the resurrection. He lived in AD 50 when Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians. He lived at the end of the first century when the Apostle John, when Bishop Polycarp and others were writing. He lived in 1200 AD, when St. Francis of Assisi was writing his works. In 1500, when Martin Luther was writing about how to be right with God, they were writing on the basis of Jesus being alive. In the 1800s, well, the 18th century, people like John Newton and William Wilberforce, looking to make changes to society because they believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead. I was listening recently to one of our ex-Deputy Prime Ministers, John Anderson, who's wholeheartedly given his life to interacting 
with beliefs that people have about Jesus. Why? Because he's 100% convinced that Jesus is alive today. Friends, Salt Church exists because we believe that Jesus is alive. We're going to be celebrating a funeral on Saturday because we believe that our sister Ness is with the live Jesus. Let me ask you, what do you think? What do you think about Jesus? Well, I want to finish by looking at one verse, verse 17. From verse 16, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. An extraordinary verse. Just a couple of verses from the end. I mean, if you were writing a fiction, would you really put, and some doubted? I think you'd be a lot more victorious and and triumphal than that. But some doubted. And maybe if this was written of us today, you'd count yourself amongst the some who doubted. Let me tell you, doubt is a good thing. It's not something to be feared. Doubt can be a wonderful thing if what you do with it is explore. And if you're doubting the resurrection of Jesus being the best explanation for these things, if you're doubting that Jesus is alive and well today, if you're doubting the fact that when people pray, they pray to a real God through a real Jesus, if you're doubting that there's a reason for people to meet together and sing songs about a resurrected Jesus, then I want to urge you to explore We do something from time to time here called Christianity Explored. It's a way that you can dig into these things and ask the questions for yourself. We've got copies of the Bible that you'd be welcome to take with you. Uh, If you'd like to sit and have a conversation with somebody about these things, and there are many of us here who'd love to do that, and you could speak to me or uh, to Nathan or Katie or somebody else that maybe you came with. They worshipped him but some doubted. To those of you who believe in the resurrected Jesus, live your lives in the worship of him. Every day, every moment, Jesus is alive. He has risen. To which if you were Anglican, you would say, we've got a couple. He's risen indeed.